Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together and to uh, study this wonderful story, this true story of Jesus. And we pray that uh, you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand these things and that our lives would be changed. For we pray in his name. Amen. Who is the most trusted person in your life? We've recently had the uh, latest round of party political conferences, haven't we? But I'd be very surprised if you told me that it was a politician. Uh, sadly, trust in our political leaders is a very low ebb. But I'm sure we do all have someone in our life that we trust very, very much. Maybe it's um, your husband or wife. Maybe it's a loyal brother or sister. Perhaps it's a parent who's always on the end of the phone, or a colleague who never fails to give 110%. Maybe it's a friend you can depend upon when life takes a turn for the worst. We need people we can trust, because without them, life just doesn't work as it ought to. But can we really trust Jesus? Jesus claimed to be the king of the kingdom of heaven. But can we trust that king? What sort of king is he? Can we rely on him when life gets really, really tough? If we allow Jesus into our life, maybe we're not yet a Christian this morning, maybe we're still thinking these things through. If we allow him into our life, will he make my life worthwhile? Can I trust him with my life? Or will he let me down like so many political leaders of our day. Whether we've been Christian a long time or a short time, whether we're still considering the Christian faith, we need to be able to answer the question, can we trust Jesus? Because Christianity claims to be a relationship with God through Jesus. And if that, um, if that relationship is unreliable, well, we might as well move on. Is Jesus trustworthy or not? We're continuing here at church, moving through these middle chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And the subject of trusting Jesus takes centre stage. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember we met two types of people who didn't trust Jesus. We, we met Jesus' neighbours in Nazareth. They were overly familiar with him. They didn't trust him. And then we met um, King Herod, who was hostile to Jesus' messenger, John the Baptist. Neither Jesus' neighbours nor the king thought it was worth trusting Jesus or those who spoke for him. And in the coming chapters, Matthew will show us that many other people didn't trust Jesus either. But he will also show us time and time and time again that Jesus is reliable. If we choose to give our lives to him, we'll discover that he can be trusted with our lives. And that is especially true um, in today's reading, which records two of Jesus' most famous miracles. We see Jesus doing the most incredible things, but we also see his disciples at centre stage. They're talking to Jesus, they're listening to Jesus, they're obeying Jesus, they're learning to trust Jesus. And that is very deliberate, that focus on those disciples, because they had to learn what we have to learn. When we look at what Jesus did, when we look at the sort of person Jesus was, we meet someone utterly reliable. We're going to see three lessons that teach us that lesson and the first comes at the beginning and the end of our passage. Jesus is full of compassion 
for needy crowds. Jesus is full of compassion for needy crowds. Look at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Well, it's hardly surprising that Jesus wants to get away from it all. His cousin has just been murdered by King Herod, and maybe he wants a bit of time by himself to grieve. Maybe he wants to avoid a confrontation with the king himself. So he heads a few miles outside of Capernaum uh, to the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and that is outside of Herod's territory. But it's hardly the middle of, it's hardly the middle of nowhere, but with any luck, he, he reasons, I'll get a bit of time to myself because it's a little bit of distance from the nearest town. But it's not far enough, is it? Verse 13. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Uh, You thought this beautiful beach was going to be totally empty. There'd be nobody else there. And so you headed off, you packed up the car with your friends or family and, and went off to that beach. And then when you got to the car park, you discovered that everybody else knew about that beach too. It's just like that for Jesus. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He didn't even have 10 minutes to take in the view. I know what I would have done. I would have thought, we're getting back in the car. We're going to find a quieter beach. Isn't it amazing that Jesus did exactly the opposite? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. We don't know what illnesses these people were suffering from. But we can be pretty sure that there were lots and lots of illnesses because there are at least 5,000 people in this crowd. Jesus knows all the details, all the numbers. He looks at that seething mass of humanity with all its suffering and he cares for them. He loves them from the bottom of his heart. He had compassion on them. Do you know that experience when you open up a newspaper or a magazine And uh, you see a flyer in there from a charity and there's this, there's a picture of a child. There's an empty stare on her face because she's afflicted by some terrible disease. And the text underneath says, just five pounds will pay for life-saving treatments. And maybe you, like me, feel that little bit of compassion in your heart when you see that image. But then all too quickly, your heart moves on and you think, well, I can't really do anything for that child. There are other things more pressing in my life. But Jesus sees the suffering of humanity and he cares for every single individual. He knows all the afflictions. He knows all the numbers. He cared back then by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he cares today. Jesus is full of compassion for needy crowds. You see the same thing, don't you, at the end of the reading, verse 34. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country People brought all who were ill to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. It seems so automatic, doesn't it? But just remember, this is not an automatic vending machine dosing out healing. This is a man who, as we read through the story, we realise has probably not slept all night. He's only had a short time to himself, but he has got all the time in the world for this needy crowd. It's tempting just to focus on the actions. After all, it must have been extraordinary to see Jesus heal such vast numbers of people. But actually, it's more important to focus on the heart of the individual who performs these actions. 
Because if we want to know whether Jesus is trustworthy, we need to see his heart, don't we? That deep, compassionate, intense, powerful love for people in need. That in itself ought to be reason to trust him. He is full of compassion for needy crowds. But there's more. Because as we move from the kind of bookends to the story towards the centre, the spotlight does fall on the actions, the miracles that Jesus performs. And they give us a second reason to trust Jesus. Jesus displays the creator's control over creation. Jesus displays the creator's control over creation. In the first miracle, Jesus creates stuff out of nothing. Enough food for a picnic for 5,000 people plus when all he started with, sorry, enough food for a feast for 5,000 people when all he started with was a picnic. And in the second that miracle, Jesus suspends the laws of nature, first for himself as he walks on the lake, and then secondly for Peter, as Peter follows in his footsteps. And it's no surprise when we look at stories like this that people have tried to explain them away, because it's pretty hard, isn't it, to get our small minds around what Jesus did. And so maybe we, or maybe others, reason to themselves, surely Jesus didn't really multiply five loaves and two fish. All he did was encourage people to share what they brought with their neighbours. It was a beautiful example of a charismatic individual teaching other people how to be generous. Well, that sounds very kind of sensible, doesn't it? Only the story won't let us reach that conclusion. You see, the disciples are not stupid. They know that the crowd don't have enough food. They know exactly how much they've got, five loaves and two fish. Now, it would have been a miracle if Jesus had divided five loaves and two fish into tiny, tiny, tiny pieces so that everybody got a tiny bit. That would have been a miracle. But, verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. There was more left at the beginning, uh, sorry, there was more left at the end than they had at the beginning. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, that is an extraordinary miracle. Doesn't part of you want to know what that actually looked like? What would it have looked like had I been there? What would I have seen? Isn't it amazing that Matthew reports this extraordinary miracle with such striking understatement? Verse 19. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Just like that. This was not a normal event that people spun into a miracle story as they told it time and time and time again. This was Jesus displaying the creator's control over creation. Just as God had done for his people before. You know, in verse 13, it says that he withdrew by boat privately to literally a wilderness. Would you remember a time when God's people were in a wilderness and they had nothing to eat? And then Exodus 16, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Jesus displays the creator's control over creation. But what about the second miracle? Can we really believe that also? Surely Jesus is walking on a sandbank, making his way out to the boats, catching a lift. The disciples are exhausted from rowing all night. They're bruised and battered by the wind. And so when they see Jesus in the early light of dawn, it's no surprise that they think the worst. 
It's the spirit of a drowned fisherman, someone who haunted the lake. They are superstitious, first century people, and they don't really know any better. So it's another simple story spun into a miracle as it's retold through the years. But once again, we don't need to be in any doubt. This is the creator at work displaying his total control over an unruly creation. Now it is true apparently that there are sandbanks close to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But did you notice the disciples are nowhere near the shore? Verse 24. The boat was already a considerable distance from land. Matthew literally says many stadia. Now a stadia is an eighth of a mile. In John's account, he says 25 or 30 stadia. Mark simply says in the middle of the lake. Now perhaps they intended to be close to the shore, but the wind that has battered and buffeted them has driven them off course. There's no way Jesus is walking on a sandbank. Now we are told exactly what he's walking on in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. See, Jesus' disciples were not first century superstitious halfwits. They were experienced fishermen. They knew this lake by the back of their hand. They sailed on it almost every day of the week. They know that they're nowhere near the shore. It is no surprise that they think Jesus is a ghost. I think you and I would have thought exactly the same thing. But this is no phantom, verse 27. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now on one level, Jesus is just simply saying, it's me. But he's also echoing God's special Old Testament name. He wants them to know that he is the eternal, awesome, unique, I am God. And if the disciples knew their Bibles, which I suspect they did, maybe they remembered verses like Job 9, verse 8. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. You see, this is no phantom. This is no man on a sandbank. This is no figment of an overactive imagination. This is the creator controlling his creation. He walks on the waves of the sea as easily as you and I walk on the pavements. Now, you see, we might know someone who is very, very compassionate, but it's no use having a heart of gold if you don't really have any power to back up that compassion. Someone might have the finest intentions, they might say the most reassuring words, but if they can't really do anything or change anything, then it's not really worth entrusting your life to them. It's not like that with Jesus. He's full of compassion, but he also has unrivaled power, and he holds compassion and power together in perfect harmony. Doesn't that look like the sort of person you really can trust? But we might say to ourselves, well, it was okay for them then. They saw it. They were there. What about me today? What about when I'm in the middle of my life and I'm faced with my questions and fears? What about when I feel so weak and the problems of life seem so big that all this stuff about compassion and power doesn't seem to connect with my life today? Can I really trust Jesus when life threatens to overwhelm me? Well, that takes us to our third lesson. Jesus trains his weak disciples to trust him. Jesus trains his weak disciples to trust him. 
Could you notice how these amazing miracles are not spectator events? In each one, Jesus draws his disciples in and he gives them a part to play. And that is because he's training them to trust him. Look back, verse 16. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. See, Jesus could have fed that crowd with a click of his fingers. But he said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. He challenged them to see their total inadequacy and then to take that inadequacy to him so that he could multiply it and bless others. Isn't that often the pattern in the Christian life? Jesus puts us in situations where we've got the opportunity to serve him and others, but we're so aware of our weakness, so aware of our inadequacy. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough people. We don't have a good enough building. We don't have enough influence. We don't have the right skills. We don't have the right training. We haven't got enough time. So in church and in our own lives, we say to Jesus, Jesus, I've only got five loaves and two fish. Jesus is not good enough. I don't have enough. I might as well give up. Jesus says to you and me, like he said to them, bring them here to me. Bring it to me and I'll multiply it. Now that doesn't mean it suddenly becomes easy to serve Jesus. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan our ministry. It doesn't mean we shouldn't think through our options. It doesn't mean it's going to be a a walk in the park serving Jesus. After all, these 12 disciples, they've got to feed 5,000 people and then they have to tidy up after them. I imagine that was pretty hard work and required a lot of planning. But it does mean that we can trust Jesus to work through us to bless others. I wonder if there's a part of church life where we're currently thinking, Jesus, we've only got five loaves and two fish. I wonder if there's a part of your own life where you sense that Jesus is calling you to serve him and to serve others. But you're saying to him, I've only got five loaves and two fish. I don't have what it takes. Maybe we need to hear Jesus say to us in our own lives or to us as a church, bring them here to me. Bring your lack of money, your lack of courage, your lack of experience. Bring it all here to me. I'm the king of creation and I'll multiply it and I'll use you to bless others. So that's in the early evening. Jesus trains his disciples to trust him in the face of their weakness and inadequacy. And then in the early hours of the morning, he trains them in the face of fear. Verse 28. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Do you notice what's going on there? The miracle, which is pretty amazing already, goes up another level. As Jesus, the creator, shares the miracle with Peter, an ordinary created human being. But then Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and he looks at the world. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. You see the conflict that is raging in Peter's heart. He trusts Jesus, so he steps out of the boat, and then his senses scream at him that he can't really trust Jesus in such a frightening world. Peter, I know you can swim, but you've never swum in the middle of this lake before, and you've definitely never done it at four o'clock in the morning, and you've never done it in a raging storm. What are you doing? You can trust Jesus on dry land, but you can't trust him out there. Doesn't that conflict sometimes rage in our hearts too? You see, Jesus has a, has a habit 
of calling us out of off dry land, out of situations in which we feel comfortable, and calling us into situations where there's danger and fear. Maybe it's a strained relationship, maybe it's an illness, maybe it's financial worry, maybe it's unwanted singleness, maybe it's unemployment, maybe it's our evangelism that just seems to fail all the time, maybe it's a moral weakness, maybe it's something in the world around us, maybe it's aggressive secularism or the rise of Islam or persecution of Christians. It's okay to trust Jesus on dry land, but when we see the wind and we start to sink, can we really trust him out there? when our senses scream at us that the world is just too frightening. See, even in the midst of the storms of life, Jesus is training us to trust him. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Isn't that a massive encouragement? Jesus doesn't say that Peter has got no faith. But he still challenges him, why did you doubt? And that's a great question to ask ourselves whenever fear or doubt replaces faith in our lives. We can say to ourselves, what was it in that situation that made me doubt? What was I, be- what was I not believing about Jesus in that storm that meant that fear replaced faith? Did I not believe that Jesus is full of compassion? Did I not believe that Jesus is always in control? Because Jesus is training me, just as he was training them, to trust him. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, they are beginning, at last, to kind of join the dots, to see that this is a man they really can trust, no matter what comes their way. And he is there for us too. No human relationship is ever 100% watertight. But our relationship with Jesus really is because of who he is. He's full of compassion. He displays the creator's control. And those things were were true on, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they're still true today. But most amazingly of all, Jesus still draws us into the story. In the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our fear, he trains us to trust him with our lives. I wonder if that is what he was praying about in the middle of the story. We missed that verse out. Where are we? Verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Could have been praying about anything. But I wonder if he was praying for his disciples because he knew just how weak they were. He knew just how fearful they were. And he knew that they needed to be trained to trust him in the face of their weakness and in the face of their fear. And if that is one of the things that uh, he prayed for them, wouldn't that be a good thing to pray for ourselves today? Should have a moment of quiet and then I'll pray.
those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Lord Jesus, we want to worship you as the Son of God, the one who is full of the most wonderful compassion and the one who has the most extraordinary power and control over creation. Lord, please forgive us for our weakness and our fear. Thank you so much that you love to train us to trust you. We pray that you would help us to do that as individuals and as a church, to trust you in the face of our weakness and inadequacy, and to trust you in the face of our fears too.